Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I'm recording this introduction on January 8th, 2021, and once again we've had a momentous week in our republic. This episode was supposed to be an interview with a leader in the community development business and was to have occurred on January 6th, the day after the violence in D.C. My guest texted that night and bowed out of the interview, just not feeling right getting on a podcast that's not about politics the day after the invasion of the U.S. Capitol. I don't blame her, and hopefully we can get her back on at a future date. So with short notice, we've pivoted and instead are re-releasing what was actually the first episode of Leading Voices, recorded back exactly four years ago in January of 2017. Holy cow, I can't believe it's been four years of Leading Voices. With then-Mayor of Tacoma, Marilyn Strickland, and now newly elected and just sworn-in Congresswoman Strickland. I actually wanted to re-release this episode when I heard through another podcast a few weeks ago about her election, She won as a moderate Democrat and was run against by the progressive Democrats, a dynamic which I find fascinating. You've heard me sneak political statements into this podcast over the past several months, and I'll take this opportunity to do so yet again, now after this week of craziness in Washington. First, I'm an optimist, and I'm a moderate, and I'm proud to say both. I keep hoping that the middle ground will hold, and I'm guessing that many of our listeners feel the same. Second, I'm hoping through both the results in Georgia and the Trump behavior inciting the violence that the Republican Party sees this as a wake-up call to jettison the Trump worship and to return to governance from some middle, constructive ground. Third, I'm scared to death about the meaning of the rampage. We have some pretty pissed off, feeling disenfranchised white dudes out there. Although invited and incited by Trump, this is a longer-term issue than Trump, It's not just an outlier. We have to use the invasion of the Capitol and the belief that our election was stolen as an outcry from a real part of our population that we as a society must find ways to address. Fourth, and the reason I find Marilyn Strickland's election as a black Asian American elected so interesting is that she brings that moderate voice. I'm hoping that the moderates and progressives in the Democratic Party find a way to work together and that the non-Trumpers in the Republican Party also use this moment of extremism to return to the act of governing constructively together. Enough is enough, folks. We need Washington governing once again. I know, I'm an idealist and a pie-in-the-sky optimist, so I bring you this conversation with Marilyn back to the podcast with these hopes for our country. Last comment. I think that you'll hear that voice of moderation and thoughtfulness from Marilyn in this conversation as well as an understanding of the role of real estate development in solving problems in her city. Marilyn's been involved with ULI and understands our industry. We have a new voice in Washington who understands and appreciates our business in a nuanced way. So folks, here's wishing for healing, moderation, nuance, progress, lots of vaccines, mental and physical health, and yes, some kumbaya in this next four years. Several of our early guests, I'm remembering both Jonathan Rose and Scott Cowan, each referred to the Hebrew term tikkun olam, roughly translated as repair the world, in our interviews as part of their worldview, and an apt shorthand for what we need in these times. There are big immediate issues out there, and we'll need a big dose of these perspectives, indeed tikkun olam, to start plowing through them. As always, thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices. Thanks to our sponsor, TerraSearch Partners. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app. Please recommend episodes to your friends. And if you have comments or questions, please feel free to email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Please enjoy the episode. So we have a lot to talk about today, but we're on the eve of the election. And I'm, as, as everybody else is obsessed this, this go around, maybe more than ever before, and so I'm just curious about less the political questions here, but how you look at the political dialogue and how you look at the discourse going on in the world, particularly from the position of being a mayor and being African-American and Asian-American. What, is, what does this particular dialogue mean and what's it mean to you and how do we move forward from here? 
Well, one of the things that's pretty interesting about the presidential election, that's really the election that we're talking about here that's overtaken everyone's attention to the point of fatigue for some folks, is we're talking about coming off the presidency of Barack Obama, who's been there for the past eight years, who had a very clear and specific urban agenda. And when I first became mayor, I remarked that, you know, since since I've been mayor in 2010, Every year when we go to D.C. for the U.S. Conference of Mayors annual winter meeting, we get an invitation to the White House. So my expectation now for any president will be, what is your urban agenda and what are you doing to reach out to America's mayors to make sure that our needs are part of what you're trying to accomplish? And that's a reciprocal relationship, by the way, because President Obama has very masterfully engaged America's mayors to help move his agenda forward as well. So I think that relationship is incredibly important for America's cities because we know that America's cities are where most of the jobs are. It's where most of the diverse populations reside. And people are moving back to cities. So as we look at the things that are important to us, ranging from investment to infrastructure, to support for our workforce, to policies that make sure that people all have access to decent jobs, to issues like raising the minimum wage and access to paid sick leave, We know that those are national policy issues, but they affect us here at home as well. And so I'm looking for a president who's going to have an open-door policy to America's mayors and understand that you have to have an urban agenda to be successful. Well said. And and question for you, because, again, as people looking at the national discourse, it it feels miserable. It feels like (laughs) gridlock. But things do happen at the local level, and they happen effectively at the local level. So help us think about, you know, you as mayor and effectiveness, the ability to be effective as mayor versus the national political discourse that takes our eyes off the balls of all those good things that are happening locally. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things that we have the advantage of as mayors and local government is we are on the ground with our residents and constituents every single day. So we're not far away in a different city. And so we interact with people in a very different way. And what that means is that there's a level of accountability that they expect. And for some of us who are mayors, you know, we don't run as partisans. Now, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I was an Obama delegate, and I'm an enthusiastic Hillary Clinton supporter. However, when we talk about problems that we want to solve, it doesn't necessarily turn into party division in trying to undermine another party or undo someone based on their political beliefs. We are focused on the outcome, and we have to figure out a best way to solve a problem. Now, sometimes partisan values will seep into these decisions, but for the most part, we're focusing on getting the job done. And, you know, you hear mayors across the country say this every day. There's no such thing as a Democratic or Republican pothole. There's no such thing as garbage being picked up in a partisan way. People expect you to do your job every day and to do it in a way that shows that you're responsible and that you care about the people that you represent. And given your comment on urban agenda, so help us think about the meaning of urban agenda and then the meaning of your involvement in an organization like the Urban Land Institute and the subjects Mm -hmm. that that affect real estate development and the built environment and in in Tacoma. Yeah, so one of the reasons I became involved with the Urban Land Institute is because I was invited to become a Rose Fellow. And through ULI, there is an organization called the Rose Center, and it focuses on public leadership. So every year, they select a cohort of mayors, I think five of us, and we get expertise from people in real estate, in development, in urban planning, And you're able to pose a specific problem in your city, and a group of experts spends the year with you looking at what the problem is, suggesting ways to solve it, and really trying to figure out, you know, how they can lend this expertise to your city. Now, one of the reasons I was enthusiastic about being a Rose Fellow is because part of my agenda when I became mayor is to raise the profile of my city. And now this is, you know, raising your profile in a very significant national way and just the connections that you receive. And so, you know, being a Rose Fellow is really what got me involved in ULI. And then I was invited to be a trustee. And and I just think that the work done by ULI is so relevant, not even just to cities, but just to communities in general, because, you know, there are a lot of members of ULI who work in suburban communities. So it's really about metropolitan areas and how we help them thrive. And I tell folks that often through ULI, we think it's land use, it's development, 
It's the built environment. But this all really comes down to how people interact in their cities and what can we do to help improve the quality of their lives. So talk about those issues in relationship to your city. And one of the things you've you've talked about in the past is that Tacoma missed the urban renewal teardowns of the 60s and 70s. So right. what does that mean about the base that you have and then the things that you're able to do? Well, you know, Tacoma is a city of about 207,000 people, and we are 30 miles south of Seattle. So we're a part of the greater Seattle-Tacoma-Bellevue metro. And, you know, with that means that we are neighboring a larger city, but at the same time, we have our own distinct personality. And when I talk about the urban renewal of the 70s and 80s, you know, some of it bypassed us. And as a result, we have this amazing stock of historic property that did not get raised and torn down. So when you come into Tacoma, especially through our downtown core, one of the first things you will notice are these beautiful old buildings that have been renovated. And, you know, we love adaptive reuse in Tacoma. That's a really important value that we have as a city. And so, for example, you know, we have a branch campus of the University of Washington, the University of Washington, Tacoma, that was built in a repurposed warehouse district. And if you come to this campus, it looks amazing because there are all these beautiful old buildings that have been reclaimed and repurposed, and it's visually stunning, but it also creates a great learning environment for the students who attend. And so we just have this stock of amazing architecture and great old buildings, you know, Old City Hall, um, the Elks Temple, the building where I work is an Art Deco building, and it was the Medical Arts Center when I was a kid, and now that's where City Hall is. And so just the ability to take these beautiful structures and invest in them and view them as an asset and really understanding that, you know, sustainability is really important to a lot of cities, and there's nothing more sustainable than rehabbing a historic property. And in my city of San Francisco, development is viewed very cautiously because words like (laughs) gentrification come up around development, not in my backyard, comes up in terms of development. We need more affordable housing or less affordable housing comes up around development. So it's kind of us and them. How is that dialogue in your city and with that infrastructure? Well, you know, I think part of it is just the result of the political climate, to be honest with you. I think that, you know, there is the profound issue of income inequality, which affects every city in America. And there's this creeping distrust of government. And now, you know, I would say the local government has the highest favorability ratings when it comes to, you know, branches of government that people trust, but there's still a bit of suspicion when something happens. And human nature is afraid of change. And, you know, you can have public hearings and meetings and have all these discussions, but you're always going to have a group of people who just oppose change. And so what we have to do is remind folks, especially in some of our underserved neighborhoods, and that's where the term gentrification often comes from. And, you know, we have a neighborhood in Tacoma that back in the 80s was known as being violent and full of gang and gangs and drugs. And we've worked really hard for decades to clean that neighborhood. And now we're going to bring light rail from our downtown core up the hill into this neighborhood. We have hospitals that anchor both end of both ends of Martin Luther King Jr. Way. And this was actually the Rose Fellowship project that we proposed. Mm. And you're starting to see some, you know, some 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 signs of retail. We have a healthcare center. We just opened a brand new swimming pool, aquatic center. And so things are starting to happen. And of course, when these things start to happen, you hear the word gentrification thrown about. And I guess my reply to that is a neighborhood should not be considered affordable because people think it's dangerous and run down. And when people talk to me about gentrification, I say, but you know what? Hilltop can have nice things too. We should have light rail that provides better transportation options. We should have a nice swimming pool and a spray ground. We should have better parks. We should want businesses that are more than just convenience stores that sell cigarettes and cheap liquor. And so the conversation really is about how do we help people understand that we're trying to bring you more amenities to your neighborhood and we're not on this stealth mission to price people out. Now, the reality is when you bring more amenities to a neighborhood, yes, property values do go up. And so we have to find a way to make sure that when we have developers who want to build housing, that we're allowing them to take advantage of some of these um, tax incentives where if they they include 20% of the housing as affordable, then they can qualify for a tax break. And so, again, you know, we want more market rate housing in some of our most underserved neighborhoods, but we have to be respectful of the people who've been there for a long time, and we do not want to price them out. That's the last thing we want to do. It's interesting. Gentrification's good till it's too good. 
And yep. It's that balancing, and political discourse has a trouble with balanced things versus black and white things. Right. And well, political describing dis- that fine edge. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, political discourse is hard. I was talking to one of my um, council members last night after our council meeting, and, you know, I said to him, I said, you know, there, I'm... I feel saddened sometimes because I feel as though our political discourse has been reduced to what people already believe via their echo chambers and social media. And so we don't have the ability to have grown-up, nuanced conversations about some really tough issues. And I don't think it's gotten to a point where I feel hopeless about it, but I'm starting to see that seep into local government, and that doesn't serve anyone well. So talk about some other issues in your community where you're having to press your governance into areas that have that kind of discomfort? So I think mm-hmm. of real estate because I'm so focused on that, but there right. must be other places in your in your role where that same kind of tension happens. Well, I mean, you know, when I ran for mayor in 2010, education was at the center of my platform. And I'm in a city where I have no direct control over the schools. They have an elected school board but I was acutely aware of the fact that if we didn't move the needle on our high school graduation rate, which was 55% at the time, then people's impressions of the city would never change. And I tell people that the fate of a city often rests on how successful your public school system is. People make decisions about where they're going to move based on the perception of the schools. Companies make decisions about where they're going to locate based on their perception of the talent pool. And if we did not come together as a community to address that problem, I was going to be unsuccessful. And so what I started to do when I became mayor was I said, education must be at the top of our civic agenda. And that means businesses, nonprofit, human services, social services, everyone in the community has got to play a role in helping our families and students succeed. Now, I'm not going to say I single-handedly made the graduation rate go up, but as of last month, it was reported at 82%. But this is what happens when a community comes together and says, this has to be a priority for us. And, you know, we have been very innovative in our school district. The city has lots of partnerships with our school district, and we work very closely with our universities. And so I think having that what I call pre-K through 16 system and this entire continuum of figuring out what role we all play is really important. And, you know, a business said to me, well, what role can I play? You can host one of my summer interns. And so, you know, it's just finding a place for everyone along the continuum saying, oh, yes, I can do something to have an impact on education. And, you know, it, it's worked well in Tacoma, and we're still striving to get that graduation rate even higher. Well, so 55 to 82 percent mm-hmm. uh, is, is an amazing transformation. And it actually, you know, we think of real estate as a limited playing field, but it's a holistic world. It is. Property values directly related to how good the schools are. That's right. And they facilitate each other moving up. Right. And and also too, think about think about land use patterns and where people choose to live. Because, you know, ideally neighborhoods have mixed income neighborhoods. I mean, you know, for, for me, it's like, you know, what, what I hate to see are neighborhoods where you have extreme poverty on one end and extreme wealth on the other. And, you know, ideally most of our neighborhoods have a mix of incomes. And why is that important? It's important for the social capital that it builds, but it's also important for the students who are in the schools because you may come from an underserved family, but if half of your classmates come from families where the parents are involved, you benefit from their involvement in what they will give to the school. And so, again, it's really about finding a way for these disparate individuals and families and people to coexist in the community and feel like they all belong there and that they can all have opportunities to be successful. Yes, in a huge way. So you said a few minutes ago that part of your agenda is to raise the profile of your city. So Mm -hmm. talk about that and talk about that within the context of the two cities that we all think of in your region, Portland and Seattle. How how does a city of your size and scale so associated with Seattle, what what does profile mean and where do you place yourself? Well, I think profile means helping improve and change the narrative of what people have thought about Tacoma historically. And part of that, I will tell you, is the low self-esteem that we've had for a long time. And, you know, what I do, for example, is, you know, I remind people that the airport that is halfway between Seattle and Tacoma is called the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. I remind folks that, you know, we have a port and 
combined with the Port of Seattle, they have formed what is now called the Northwest Seaport Alliance, which makes us one of the biggest ports on the West Coast. And so it's really embracing the fact that we're part of the greater metropolitan Seattle-Tacoma-Bellevue region and not isolating ourselves just because we're separated by 30 miles. The other thing I do is, you know, every chance I get, I speak to groups in Seattle. You know, I've been invited to speak at their chamber, at their downtown association. Um, there's a women's leadership group. I'm part of the um, their chamber. I'm part of the Trade Development Association. So, you know, really participating as mayor to make sure I have a presence and I'm able to tell the story of the great things that are happening in my city. And there are amazing things happening here. And, you know, I tell people that having traveled around the world and even visiting other U.S. cities, very few urban communities can boast 43 miles of shoreline, an 800-acre public park with a zoo and aquarium, a diverse population, an international port, three universities, and all these great assets, historic properties. So how do I, how do I get out there and tell the story, both regionally, nationally, and also internationally? And this is one of the reasons I'm so involved with the U.S. Conference of Mayors and why I've chosen to be part of the Rose Center Advisory Board, why I'm a trustee with ULI. But you know, in many ways, I'm the face of this city. So the more I can get out there and promote my city, the more our profile goes up. Absolutely. And, and talk a little bit about where this economic cycle has brought Seattle and the transformation of Seattle, which maybe has moved itself from not a second-tier city, that's not the right word, but you know, mm-hmm. into the top 10 cities on a sustained basis, and then sure. how that brings you up along as well. No, absolutely. You know, I tell people that people often say to me, what is it like to be in the shadow of Seattle? And I say, no, no, no. What's it like to bask in their glow? Because, again, we are all part of the same family, and so that's how I view it. And, you know, if you look at the rise of Seattle, you know, I graduated from the University of Washington, and I lived on Capitol Hill in a one-bedroom apartment that was $285 a month. And it was this huge, beautiful apartment. And when I talk about that rent rate, it, number one, it dates me. <laughs> and number two, it just kind of reminds you of where Seattle is today compared to where they were. And I tell folks, the Seattle that I remember is from the movie The Fabulous Baker Boys. That's my Seattle. <laughs> you know, it's still kind of on the cusp, not as fancy, very affordable, you know, lots of arts, going, you know, a lot of arts, but, you know, not, not the shiny, sexy city that we see today. And I am so thrilled for Seattle's success. And I, like I said, Tacoma basks in the glow. And, you know, the way that's affected us economically, you know, when you look at the region, you know, unemployment is pretty low in our region. But the truth is unemployment is about three and a half percent in Seattle and it's about six percent in Tacoma. So it's still higher in my city than it is in Seattle. And there are a lot of drivers behind that. And, you know, you have to acknowledge the tech boom happening on South Lake Union and in Seattle. So you have people like, you know, starting with Bill Gates and Redmond, Paul Allen, Jeff Bezos, Howard Schultz, the Boeing family. And they have made huge investments in Seattle over a few decades, and that has resulted in this amazing boom and great economy. At the same time, they have some of the most severe income inequality, and people are being priced out of Seattle, and I'm seeing more people move to Tacoma. And I would say that's actually a positive because what we want to do is start to build a larger talent pool so that companies decide that this may be a better place to locate. And, you know, to be honest with you, I'm getting calls from companies saying, oh, you know, I'm a small company. I'm, you know, I'm up and coming. I'm a startup in Seattle's pricing me out. So maybe we can come to Tacoma and see what's there. And so it's going to happen eventually. And in the next 20 years, I think it's projected that there will be 800,000 people who move to this metro area. So the growth is happening. And, one of the best things that we can do is invest in regional transportation. And we have a huge measure on the ballot on November 8th, which is going to be a $54 billion investment in regional transit over a 25-year period. It's a dream for that to happen because you want to, you know, you could live in Tacoma, enjoy it, walk to yeah. coffee, and then walk to the train and walk to work. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing about it, too, is, you know, right now, you know, they're, I mean, you know, it's pretty common in metropolitan areas for people to work outside of the city where they reside. But 30 miles from Tacoma to Seattle can be two hours, depending on how horrible the traffic is, how many accidents there are, and how the weather is. And that's just, that just saps away at people's lives. <laughs> you know, it becomes a quality of life issue. And so the easier we can make it for people to move around the entire region, you know, I tell people it's not about getting rail to Seattle. It's about getting rail from Seattle and SeaTac to Tacoma. Absolutely true. So a moment ago I said walk to coffee, and it's funny because in the real estate world we 
talk about the everyone talks about the walkability index. I talk about the walk to coffee index. Right. I think you're maybe you started your career or early in your career you worked for Starbucks, which created the walk to coffee word for me. <laughs> well, I did. Um, I was at yes, I was I was at Starbucks back in the day. So um, I. I received, I earned a master's degree in business administration from Clark Atlanta University, which is a historically black college. And after coming back to this area, you know, I was just looking around for different positions and there was this coffee company that I kind of had not heard of and I ended up working there and this was probably in the late mid to late 80s and they were just growing exponentially. And I remember when I was at Starbucks, this is how long ago it was. The mantra was 2,000 stores by the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And they were just entering Chicago and Washington, D.C. And I still remember this event that was being planned where they were opening a store in this neighborhood called DuPont Circle in D.C. and didn't know if it was going to be successful. <laughs> I, I think about that now and I just laugh. And then I remember hearing them talk about you know going to Atlanta to Lenox Square, which is a very high-end shopping, you know, shopping area. And having lived in Atlanta for five years, I remember talking to people in Seattle going, why would they go to Atlanta? Why are they going there? I'm like, okay, you guys, it's not like your stereotypical notion of the South, you Northwesterner. Be open-minded here. <laughs> I know Atlanta is right. a very metropolitan city. And so it's, it, you know, just looking back on it, it's pretty amazing to think that we were just migrating east when I was at Starbucks, and now they're a global giant. Absolutely true. So what did you do yeah. for Starbucks, and then how did I, that evolve into what you're doing today? Yeah, so I had a couple of different positions at Starbucks. Um, I was basically a marketing manager. I did um, analysis for the mailer departments. We would look at circulation rates and what people were purchasing. And you know, it was just a great opportunity, really, to work at a company that was, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of people still didn't know what Starbucks was at the time. And mm-hmm. so working in marketing and trying to market the product and create loyalty programs, I think it was just a great opportunity to do a lot of different things for, you know, a great, amazing brand. So how did that lead you to become mayor? And how does one get to become mayor? <laughs> Tell well, us you know, the there, story. There, yeah, well, the, there is no manual that says steps one through eight get you to the mayor's office. And, you know, Legally, the only requirement, I think, is that you have to have lived in your city for at least a year or two, and you have to be a registered voter. <laughs> so that's really those are really the only qualifications, technically. But I would say that my journey to the mayor's office was not something that I planned my entire life. And, you know, after working at Starbucks and enduring that commute, I ended up working for an advertising agency here in Tacoma. And from there, I really started getting more civically engaged. So I was on the library board of trustees for a public library system. And then back in 2007, because we have term limits in Tacoma on the city council, there was an open seat. And a former mayor who actually was the former speaker of the House of Representatives, but also, more importantly, was my guidance counselor in middle school when I was 14, recruited me to run for city council. And that's really how I got into public office. So I was recruited. I wasn't looking for it. Um, and I think, you know, like a lot of people, when you're approached, your first response is, oh, no, 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 I'm not qualified. Why would I do that? But then, you know, you think about it, you think about the impact you could have on people's lives. And, you know, it was something I did. I ran in a competitive four-way race and I won. So that's really got, wow. what got me started in politics. And wait, and the person who recruited you had been your high school guidance counselor? He was my middle school guidance counselor. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, I know. And it's really funny. So I lived in Atlanta for a while, and I remember when I returned to Tacoma, there was some big civic event happening at one of the theaters, and I think I was a volunteer. I think I, I'm pretty sure I was checking coats. And he walks up, and I saw him, and I said, hi, Mr. Ebersol. And he said, we're adults now. You can call me Brian. And mm-hmm. that was really how, you know, we became reacquainted. And, you know, we, we went out to lunch, you know, started kind of finding out what have you been up to? Would you be interested in being on the library board? Then it turned into you should run for office. And then, you know, when I was a city council member for two years, and then the mayor's seat became open again because of term limits, and there was someone who got into the race and a lot of folks were saying, you know what, you should consider running against him. And I said, you know what, I have nothing to lose. Even if I had lost that election, I still would have kept my seat on city council. So it really was a no-lose proposition for me. And I will tell you that of all the jobs that you can have in government, I think mayor is by far the best. And why do you say that? 
you get to be the ambassador for your city. You can have a positive impact on people, and you have the satisfaction of knowing that you get stuff done on a regular basis. And I just think it's incredibly gratifying. And you know, I will I will tell folks that one of the things I love most about being mayor is that you just have this camaraderie with other mayors. And when I first was elected mayor, the outgoing mayor of Seattle, Greg Nichols, said to me, he said, whatever problem you're having right now, whatever problem you will face, there's probably someone who's a mayor who has either been through it and can give you some really good advice. So look to your peers and your colleagues to when you when you need to vent, <laughs> when something good is happening, when something bad is happening. But, you know, use, this, use them as a resource. And that has been so spot on. It's been really good advice. And from from the outside, as a person fascinated by politics, but not in the political business, we we think of government as an escalator. You have to climb the rungs, and everyone wants to <laughs> climb the rungs, versus maybe being there and then having life not the next rung in the political world, but something else. And so help me think about that in this community of mayors across the country where where do they go or do they all climb that rung as the goal? No, I mean, I think, for, you know, I remember this must have been two or three years ago and there was a woman who was a mayor of a city, I think in the Midwest somewhere. And every year when someone leaves, we have a nice celebration for them. And she was speaking and she made this remark that really stuck with me. And she said, people have often asked me, am I going, am I aspiring for higher office? Are you running for mm-hmm. higher office? She said, in my opinion, there is no higher office than being mayor. And I just remember that sentiment. And this is not me saying that I'll never run for office again, although the likelihood is pretty slim right now. But I think that, you know, when you do this job, this is the biggest, most public audition you will ever have. And you become knowledgeable about such an enormous book of business that you never thought you would know about. I mean, I would, if you asked me seven years ago, what are you going to know about regional transportation and transit and buses and streetcars and trains and commuter rail? I would have told you nothing. If someone said to me, what are you going to understand about municipal bond financing and what it means when Moody's, Fitch, and Standard & Poor gives you a rating? And how does that affect your ability to borrow money? Topics you never dreamed that you would dig deep into mm-hmm. and you, you get to be mayor and you learn so much. And you learn so much about so many different disciplines. You learn a lot about organizational behavior. You learn about what motivates people. And I think you also think about, you know, how you prioritize things. As you may guess, when you're mayor, you ha- there are a lot of expectations that are put on you and you can't do everything and you can't do everything well, but you have to find areas of focus where you think you can have the most impact. And that can be tricky when you have a lot of people demanding things from you, but staying focused and being able to kind of stiff arm the noise that's not helping you is a skill that you learn over time. I bet. And and how do you do that in a way not to get torn asunder, either back to politics or back to just having balance and time in your day and your life? Well, you know, anyone who tells you that being mayor is not demanding, is not being forthcoming with you, you are on all the time. And, you know, if you're sitting in a restaurant with your spouse trying to have a quiet dinner in a corner, in all likelihood, someone's going to come up and say hi to you. And you know what? I view that as an honor because there will come a time in my life when no one invites me to do anything and no one's going to know who I am. <laughs> and so I say to myself, you know what? This is a blessing and a privilege. So if we're trying to have dinner and drinks and someone wants to come say hi or talk about something, I do it gladly and willingly. And, you know, and, and it happens. And in a city the size of Tacoma where, you know, where the population is just over 200,000, that happens more often than not because we're a smaller community. And I, I still tell this really funny story. When I first became mayor... I remember getting on the elevator at City Hall, and I got on the elevator with a couple of employees, and there was a gentleman who worked, I don't even know what department he was in, and he said, oh, are you new here? And I said, kind of. And he goes, oh, well, what floor do you work on? It's like the 12th floor. It's like, oh, what do you do? I said, I'm the mayor. And he just died of embarrassment and was so apologetic. And I said, you know what? I said, everyone does not know this because the whole world is not obsessed with politics like those of us who live in the bubble. And it happens often. And I remember going to an optometrist one time and I was sitting there getting, you know, getting fitted for glasses. And he said, oh, what do you do? I said, oh, I work at City Hall down the street. He's like, oh, he's like, he's like, he's like, what do you do at City Hall? I said, oh, I'm the mayor. And he goes, oh, you work for the mayor? I said, no, I am the mayor. Now we can go into a little sidebar about gender and ethnicity and assumptions that people make about who should be leaders. But you know, those, those little things happen all the time. And I don't view them as slights. I view them as reality checks 
again, reminding myself and a lot of people who are like the officials, like, you know what? Most people don't know who you are, and most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about you because they have lives. Absolutely true. But let's go into that sidebar because that was going to be my next question anyhow. Oh, okay. Which is talk about being female mayor, talk about okay. being African-American, talk about being Asian-American, and what that means and how that affects you. And Sure. I mean, there's a saying that says, you know, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And what that means is that we all view the world through our lens of personal experiences and habits and culture and you know, just 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 things that compose that that make up your you know who you are as a person, and I am the second mayor of second female mayor of Tacoma. So I'm I think the last time we had a female mayor was like probably 25 years ago, over 20 years ago. And women don't often run for office in general, let alone for mayor. But I tell an, I tell a story that's pretty interesting. So when I ran for city council. I remember people were just enthusiastic and they were getting behind me and like, oh, yeah, you're going to be great. Yeah, 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 you should run. And then two years later, when I decided to run for mayor, I was kind of like, whoa, 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 don't cool your heels, young lady. Don't Not so fast. What do you think you're doing there? And so it's interesting to think about power and authority and who people think is entitled to it and who's not. And I don't think it was, you know, denigrating my skill set or anything. But again, we still have a very Western male notion of leadership, what it looks like, how it behaves. And I think that's starting to change a bit because the demographics of the country are changing. But I think we're still used to a very, you know, traditional notion of who's in charge, who are leaders, and who 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 is entitled to have power and authority. And you know, as as a woman, you know, can I, can I say that I have experienced things that are harder because I'm a female. I mean, probably, but at the same time, I also believe that being a woman has has been an asset for me. And I think one of the things that's interesting in this debate about gender and leadership is, again, coming back to this idea of people have a Western male notion. And so they often think that strength looks and behaves a certain way and talks a certain way. Or, you know, my husband is a six-foot-tall, blonde-haired blue-eyed Irish man. And so if we're standing side by side and someone said, who's the mayor? I don't know that they would pick me first. <laughs> and so I think they're just some of the, you know, just, just some of the, the yep. I hate using this term, but some of the microaggressions that take place or even just, you know, in, in situations where I, I've been to play. I remember actually, it may have been a ULI event a couple of years ago where I remember there was a reception and I was with my public works director and my planning director and we walk into this reception and someone said, oh, the mayor of Tacoma is here. And I put out my hand to shake someone's hand. I said, oh, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Marilyn Strickland, mayor of Tacoma. And someone said, you're the mayor? I said, indeed. And so they're just these little things that happen. And, you know, I think that's changing over time. But I will say this. Women make up over half of the population in the U.S. and across the board around or less than 20% of elected officials. And that has got to change. And, and that's the biggest, higher than corporate America, though, isn't it? It is higher than corporate America, indeed. Indeed. And so I think if you look at boardrooms and CEOs, those numbers are probably lower, but I I can't confirm that for sure. But I'm guessing it is. But I think, Uh you know, the point I'm trying to make is I don't think that the numbers of women who are elected officials, the number is so low because we don't win elections because we're actually pretty successful when we run. I just there just aren't enough women who decide to take the leap and run for office. And uh-huh. we have to do a better job of encouraging more women to do that. And when that conversation comes up, it typically comes up in, well, we need to encourage more young women to run for office. And I come back and say, no, we just need to encourage more women, period, to run for office and not engage in age discrimination. Totally agree with that. And and you see it in real estate. But it, so it's interesting, as I asked the question, the first, your first response, because I said, what's it mean to be female, African-American, Asian-American? And so we talked about the female part. Talk about right. the, the ethnicity. About the ethnicity part, and then we'll come back. So I have other thoughts about that. No, so you know, I I think that being a woman of color adds another layer of I'm not going to say complexity, but it, but it adds another layer of your personality. And one example I like to give, you know, when I ran for mayor, I ran against someone who was a small business owner who, you know, basically has had built a good practice and a good living as an architect on a lot of public projects, publicly financed projects. And so mm-hmm. when he and I were in debates or even when the election was over and I won, I remember talking with the local chamber of commerce. And I, you know, what I did was I reached out to 
the groups who supported me and thanked them profusely. And then I did kind of a tour of people who didn't support me. And my message was, look, you didn't support me in the election, but I'm your mayor too. And we need to work together and find a way to you know, have common goals. And so I stood before the Chamber of Commerce at a breakfast, I remember. And I, you know, I did my spiel and my stump speech and talked about what I wanted to accomplish. And I said to them, I said, you know, there's something I want to make sure that you all understand about me. And this is not denigrating the profession. I said, but I have never worked in social services one day in my life. And they were surprised to learn that I had an MBA. I'd worked at Starbucks Corporation. I'd worked at an ad agency. And a lot of them didn't know I had a business background. And I guarantee you it's because of who they saw and just some of the assumptions they made about who I am because I am a woman of a certain age and a woman of color. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think that people kind of project upon you who you're supposed to be. But, you know, on the other hand, too, you know, people sometimes I think – I would hope to think that in 2016, when someone says something like, oh, you're so articulate, it doesn't mean the flip side of because most of y'all aren't. And so it's thinking about, you know, how people, how you're able to interact and get things done. But, you know, I will tell you that living in the Pacific Northwest, you know, this is not a majority minority state. You know, the state is, I think, maybe somewhere between 75 and 80 percent white. But I live in a city that is 65% white and 35% minority. So, you know, as far as Washington State City goes, this is a pretty good minority city, although Bellevue is now a majority minority city. And so, you know, the fact that a black Asian female was elected mayor in a majority white city is a pretty big accomplishment. And I don't think people were viewing me through the lens of, oh, she's not qualified because she's a woman, because she's black, because she's Asian. And in many cases, I think that really serves as an asset for me. And, you know, for example, you know, I do a lot of international travel. I was in Korea in September. I go to China often. And when I tell people I'm the first Asian American mayor in Tacoma, that resonates with folks. And so in many ways, my identity is a way to connect with people who often don't feel necessarily that they are welcome into circles of power. And and I would also say too, you know, being being African American, again, you know, I am the first African American mayor who was elected mayor. We had an African American mayor a while ago, but he was appointed when someone passed away. So I'm the first African American person to win an election as mayor in Tacoma. And you know, I tell people that, you know, when people ask me why do you want to be you know, why did you want to be mayor? Of course my answer is I love this city and I want to improve the quality of life for as many people as possible. But coming from an African-American perspective, I want to make life better for black people. And I do not apologize for saying that because we know that there are some issues facing the African-American community that are more challenging than they are for the general population. It's one of the reasons I focus so hard on education. It's one of the reasons I focus on my summer jobs program. It's one of the reasons that I was enthusiastic about President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative. And so not only do I feel a responsibility, you know, I get to do this job for eight years and I have got to move the meter on helping African-Americans and all people of color. Doesn't mean I'm not everyone's mayor, but I don't apologize for saying I need to help focus on the community that to, to which I belong as well. Absolutely. So I hate to keep sticking with politics, but I'm so interested. That's okay. In, you know, it's the topic of the world right now. That's all right. But it's all right. Did, the anger about Obama uh, mm-hmm. has been palpable through his presidency. The anger yep. about Hillary has been palpable through her candidacy and potentially mm-hmm. may, may last through her presidency if she's elected. But maybe long term, the needle has moved in a big way. You still feel the anger, but maybe the need. But I think the needle is, has moved in a meaningful way. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, when 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 I think about whenever I think about people behaving a certain way, I always step back and say, okay, what is the source of this? What is the root of this? And you know, I'm not going to make a gross generalization about the anger in America, but I will say this: you know, the whole conversation about income inequality did not really become a national conversation until it started affecting enough white people, because income inequality has been part of life for a lot of communities of color for a really long time, mm-hmm. and so. When I and and then and the reason I use that to answer your question is that there are a lot of people who have been able to make a decent living for a long time, and those jobs aren't there anymore. They have been sold this false bill of goods that they're going to suddenly come back, mm-hmm. and they see a world that is changing around them, and they feel as though they don't have any role in it. And so they're feeling marginalized. They feel like their livelihoods are threatened, and so that creates this bubbling of anger. 
But you also have folks, if you look at, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the way that relationships with police officers and communities of color are now at the forefront. And so there are things that have been bubbling beneath the surface for a long time. And it just feels like this particular election, and I'd say the last few years, things are just really coming to the forefront. And in many ways, there's nothing wrong with having an argument. The challenge is having an actual debate and actively listening and not just forming your talking points because you're so dug into your position and you're never going to listen to anyone else. And that's how, you know, that, that I tell people, I said, one of the hardest things for us to discuss in America is race. And I can tell you exactly how a community conversation about race will go. We'll make an announcement about it. We'll hold it. We'll have folks who are on a panel. We'll have a moderator and everyone in the audience will be the choir because they will already understand what the issue is. The conversation about race in America must be had between and among people with really divergent views. I mean, that's what we have to have, and that's the hard part. And I'm not saying we have to invite, you know, the Black Panthers and the KKK, but somewhere in the middle are a lot of good, well-meaning, decent people who have their fears, who have their distrust, and they have to find a way to have conversations with each other. That's the conversation we just can't seem to have. And it usually devolves into name-calling, or you're this, or people aren't actively listening, and they're forming their rebuttal while someone else is talking. And again, the nuanced conversations that we, are, that we seem incapable of having, and that spills over into our politics. You know, We have to be able to have these nuanced conversations with people who may not agree with us, but we're not going to solve problems, and we can't become ideologues or absolutists who say that, you know, no way, no how, no compromise. And, you know, I understand that, you know, incrementalism doesn't work for everyone. And sometimes you have to take big, giant steps. But at the same time, if we cannot have an adult reasoned conversation about our biggest issues, we're not going to solve these problems. It's interesting. My daughter just graduated college. And coincidentally, she works at the Urban Land Institute. But she was a major in Africana studies. Mm -hmm. And she's a Jewish white girl. Right. And her challenge and, and her love of what she studied was she was trying, was challenged to get herself in the head right. of the place that black people in America come from. Mm -hmm. and, and, and forcing that over a three-year period for her was a fascinating learning experience in metamorphosis. No, it is. And what's fascinating more than anything else, I mean, you know, we hear the terms in politics of the black community. And many of us will say, look, we're not a monolith. And when you hear one of the candidates talk about his agenda for the black community, and he automatically goes to the most underserved, impoverished neighborhoods and says that every day we all dodge bullets, a lot of us are saying, wait a minute, that experience doesn't represent everyone's experience. And so the question becomes, again, you know, how do you have these thoughtful conversations that are based in reality and help people understand that, you know, we, we're, we all come from different places and you can't just generalize about a group of people and presume that they all share a set of experiences because it's, it's very right. different for all of us. Well, again, in the election, we're hearing that you all live in living hell or something. Is that the worst we've well, heard? Yeah, from... we, all, we, all, we all live in living hell. We all don't value education and we're all in danger of being shot every time we step outside. Oh, yeah. Life is and, much broader and much more nuanced and much more interesting than that. It's not just that exactly. one headline. And, and it's not Coexist. denying that these problems don't exist, but they exist in a lot of places. And so, again, it's, it's uh -huh. that sweeping generalization that really doesn't serve anyone at all. So we only have a few more minutes. Let's come back to ULI. Yeah, <laughs> now that we've talked about yeah, all of these things and, and come back to kind of real estate, housing, development in your city – and where the connection with your leadership is to that, and any kind of parting thoughts on those topics? Yeah, so, you know, people often ask me, what's your vision for Tacoma? And so I will give what I call my stump speech answer, and I say that Tacoma has evolved from a polluted industrial town into an international waterfront port city, and we are now a leader in education, the arts, environmental stewardship. And that is the absolute truth. We have cleaned up our polluted waterways. We've dramatically increased our high school graduation rate and education attainment levels of our of our populace. And we 
embrace the arts in a way that I think is pretty unique for a city our size and do a lot of investment in the arts, from the fine arts to grassroots artists. Now, with that, I tell folks that at the end of the day, however, the thing I want to accomplish the most is that I want more people to move to Tacoma because this is a community of choice. And that sounds like a very simple premise, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't happen unless you have decent schools, unless you have jobs that pay well, unless you have neighborhoods that are safe, unless you have a quality of life that is desirable. And so at the end of the day, that's what I'm trying to do. And land use and development play a big role in that because we're looking at how the built environment makes it easy and pleasant and desirable for someone to want to live here. You know, one of the things about large cities is that some of them are so large where you don't need a car to get around. We aren't there yet because we don't have the transit system or the density to have the types of businesses so closely clustered. Now, we have some neighborhoods that are that have, that have are doing that really well, but not enough of them. And so the work that I do with the Rose Center, with the Urban Land Institute, really informs me when I think about how we're planning development. What types of policies do I have in place as far as height restrictions, setbacks, amount of green space? But at the end of the day, it all comes down to what experience does a person have who lives here, who visits here, and what's it like for them to interact with their environment? Is it easy to get somewhere? Do they feel safe? Is it beautiful? Is it pleasant? Those are the types of questions that I think being part of ULI helps me answer and helps me drill down on. And again, the resources that you have when you're part of ULI just cannot be understated because I can pick up the phone and say, oh, I've got this problem. What do you guys think? And they will send a team or we can have someone take a look at it. And so it really is just this amazing global resource that I think people don't fully appreciate. Absolutely. Mayor Strickland, I want to thank you. This has been a delightful conversation and I'll look forward to meeting you at some point. I would love to do that. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.